You're listening to the William Allen Smith Podcast, where I talk about books, thoughts, and roads, the journeys of life. Demand for my opinions is at an all-time low, and for good reason. So thank you for listening. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Thanks for joining me again. I am excited to dig into the final meditation in David Bentley Hart's great book, That All Shall Be Saved. This is the fourth and final meditation, so obviously there were three preceding meditations. The first one is the moral meaning of creatio ex nihilo, if God created everything in freedom, free from constraint of necessity or ignorance. In other words, nothing made him do it. And there's nothing in the way that it will ultimately turn out that will shock him. If that's true, and if in the end what we have are billions of humans suffering forever, then it is logically inevitable that that was his intent. And since creation flows out of him as creator without constraint, completely freely, then creation gives expression to who he is. And so there is a moral significance to creatio ex nihilo. If God created freely, and if we wind up with eternal conscious torment, then there's no way around the fact that God created human beings with the intent of torturing them forever. That's the first meditation. The second meditation is what is judgment? Uh, It goes into the idea that uh, in Scripture, there are many prophecies that predict final judgment, and you can't ignore them. You can't pretend like they're not there. There are also many Scriptures that predict a universal salvation, a final reconciliation of all things in Christ. And David Bentley Hart presents that you don't have to pick one or the other, but you can see these as a narrative unfolding, that there will be a final judgment that will lead to a final reconciliation of all things. And really the only shift you have to make in order to synthesize those two ideas in that way is to abandon the assumption that eternal judgment means a judgment that is according to this present age being extended out into forever. Eternal judgment doesn't refer to the retributive justice of this present age lasting forever. Eternal judgment is heaven's kind of judgment, God's kind of judgment, which is a reconciling, restoring judgment. And yes, it's going to last forever. So there will be a final judgment and it will lead to the reconciliation of all things, the restoration of all things, the summing up of all things in Christ. Finally, in the third meditation, David Bentley Hart talks about what is a person and really goes in in great detail into Romans 9, 10, and 11. And if we read that less individualistically, instead of becoming kind of the proof text for Calvinism and predestination and the divine election of some individuals to heaven and some individuals to hell, it actually becomes an argument for the full inclusion of the both the Gentiles and the Jews, which incidentally is everyone, if you combine them together, that, that God shuts everyone up in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. And that's good because as persons, we are not just distinct, discrete individuals. Our personhood is in connection with 
all of our relationships, the people who have gone before, who will come after, the people we're connected to now. And that's the same for all of those people. Their personhood is connected to everyone they're connected to and on out into encompassing all of humanity so that if I'm saved and you're not, then by virtue of you not being saved, my personhood is diminished because part of what makes me a person is that I'm connected to you as part of the whole of humanity. And so if God is going to save anyone, he needs to save everyone because of what it means to be a person. The fourth and final meditation is called, What is Freedom? He begins the chapter with a a brief discussion of the various options to the question, what is the purpose of an eternal hell? When you look at the idea of taking human beings and tormenting them forever, then you immediately exclude what I guess could be the first option, that it is redemptive in some way. The, The point he makes, and I think quite clearly, is that a lesson that takes eternity to learn can never be learned. He's not teaching the damned a lesson. There's nothing redemptive, restorative, reconciling about it. It has no benefit to them. So eternal suffering doesn't have any intrinsic value. Therefore, if it has any value at all, it must be some kind of extrinsic value. And so Hart points out that the traditional formulation of an answer to that question represented by guys like Thomas Aquinas and Peter Lombard quite some time ago is what is called the amplification of beatitude. Now, that's a fancy way of talking about increasing the blessing of the saved and the glorification of God, I guess, would be those two ideas, that the the enjoyment of heaven by the elect will be amplified and that their worship of God will be amplified. While I guess that makes sense is the only extrinsic solution that they could come up with, you still wind up with the saved being somehow blessed by the eternal torment of the damned without any redemptive purpose and the God that their worship is increased towards is a monster. That's option two. The third option, the much more palatable option, and and maybe depending on the circles and streams that you grew up in, uh, perhaps the more common option is not to say that the, the damned are tormented forever for the glory of God, for the amplification of beatitude, but instead that the the damned are tormented forever because God honors human freedom. The basic idea is that God is love and God values love and love has to be chosen in order to be love. And so for there to be a real option for humans to choose to love God forever, they must have the real option to choose to reject God forever. And therefore, no one spends eternity in torment because of God's sadistic desire to torment people, but rather God so values human freedom that he'll just let us have that if we choose it. It kind of goes back to C.S. Lewis's famous statement that in the end, there will only be two categories of people. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, fine, have it your way. I must admit that that argument is much easier to embrace than the other. Maybe that's just because that's the tradition I was brought up in. I was That's how the doctrine of eternal hell was explained to me, that God honors human freedom. 
And what Hart does is he begins to apply some scrutiny to what we might mean when we say that God honors freedom. What is freedom? Our concept of freedom often can't withstand that kind of scrutiny. And once our definition of freedom has to change, then that argument that, well, God honors freedom, that's why there's an eternal hell, begins to completely fall apart and crumble. It's no longer sustainable. So what is freedom? If you think that freedom is the kind of libertarian ability to choose between indeterminate options, that my freedom is, there's a range of options and I can just choose whatever I want and I'm free. It fails to understand and acknowledge how limited my freedom is as a human. Very few things that I do are truly free. It's not just that I can choose one thing or another that makes me free, because the range of options that I have in front of me that I can perceive are so limited. My perception is so limited and I'm bringing to the choice a tremendous amount of bias rooted in my culture, rooted in my past experiences, rooted in my assumptions, rooted in my faulty logic. And so my choice isn't libertarian. My choice is formed. My choice is shaped. It's not predetermined, but rarely is it a shock because if you're aware of my culture, my worldview, my past, my history of choices, the trajectory of my life, my relationships, my hurts, my pains, my fears, then you're rarely ever going to be surprised by my choice because it is not free. It is formed. It is shaped. It is constrained. And that shaping may be reinforced by my choices, but a lot of the determining factors of my freedom have been shaped by choices I didn't make and by reactions in my formative years that I was way too immature to even consider. When we say that a human being freely chooses to reject God and God just honors that freedom, then we're assuming that God has this view of freedom where it makes sense to assign an absolute consequence to a choice that is incredibly finite and limited. And so we wind up in that definition of freedom, not exalting the value of freedom, but rather winding up back at the place of, oh, that's not just. And if we're going to say that that's just, then the idea of justice loses all meaning. Freedom is becoming who you were created to be. At one point in my distant past, I was on staff at a church and oversaw a ministry called Freedom Ministry. My mentor in that season define freedom as the the capacity to fully relate to God as the person that you were created and redeemed to be. And I'm reading David Bentley Hart's book, and, and he says this, let me just read a short passage. True freedom consists in the realization of a complex nature in its own proper good. Freedom is a being's power to flourish as what it naturally is to become ever more fully what it is. The freedom of an oak seed is its uninterrupted growth into an oak tree. The freedom of a rational spirit is its consummation in union with God. Here's the bottom line of that. To choose something other than God is not freedom. It's bondage. You see, slavery, bondage, is anything 
that's in the way of our ultimate good. Freedom and bondage is anything that's in the way of our union with God. Freedom and bondage is anything in the way of becoming who we were created to be. And who were we created to be? Let us make man, mankind, in our image and in our likeness and let them have dominion. Image and likeness being an idiom for a parent-child relationship. We were designed to look like our daddy, so to speak. We were designed for that parent-child relationship with God. We were made for union with God. That's who we are. That, that, and freedom is choosing that. Freedom is my capacity to become that. Freedom is my capacity to lean into that. And if I choose something other than that, then that's not freedom. That's bondage. And, and here's why. Jesus said in John 8, 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So there's this corresponding relationship between the truth that I have and the freedom that I have. So that if I have less truth, then I have less freedom. And if I have more truth, then I have more freedom. And if I have ultimate truth, then I have ultimate truth freedom. There's a corresponding relationship between the truth that I have and the freedom that I have. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So here's the implications of that. If my ultimate good, according to God's design in my life, God's purpose in my life, God's intention in my life, if the ultimate good is for me to find union with God in Christ, if that is the choice that will make me fully me, and I choose something other than that, I reject that and choose something else in its place, then in making that choice, what I'm revealing is my lack of truth. What I'm revealing is that in that wrong choice that's going to lead to something other than me being the person I was created to be, it's going to lead to something less than ultimate good in my life. It's going to lead to something less than ultimate fulfillment uh, in my life. It's going to lead to something other than ultimate actualization of, of God's purpose and intention and design in my life. If it's going to lead to something other than my ultimate happiness, then I'm making a wrong choice. Why? Because I'm in bondage to a certain level of delusion and deception. And so if instead of choosing God, I choose not God, that choice is not an expression of freedom. It is an expression of bondage. It's an expression of bondage to my delusion and my deception. That's why in Philippians 2, beginning with verse 9, it says this, Therefore God, it's talking about Jesus here, Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul writes elsewhere uh, in, in 1 Corinthians that now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. He acknowledges that in this present age, in this life, that there's a limitation of our perception. But there's going to come a point where that ends and the veil is lifted and we no longer see through a glass darkly, but we, we have direct access to this revelation of who God is. And in this passage that I just read from Philippians in chapter 2, it points to that moment 
where all of humanity stands before this God, stands before this Jesus. And what does it say? That when that happens, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, without exception, including everyone. Every knee will bow. And, and you might think, well, that's going to be a force thing. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be like, you know, somebody behind them kicking them in the back of the knees and forcing them to the ground, even though they don't want to and their will's against it. That's not the tone of this at all. When it says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Greek word is very specific. Now, you can use it to talk about confessing sin. And in that sense, it would have more of a, a I guess, a negative connotation. But that's not what's being talked about here. Every tongue is not confessing sin here. Every tongue is confessing what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That word confess has this connotation, thanksgiving and praise. Every knee, every tongue, nobody is left out. There's not this other category of people that are in hell that aren't going to do this. They're going to gladly confess, praise, offer thanks that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When is that going to happen? When we stand before the exalted Christ. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. At that point, every soul will be set free from their delusion and their deception. And what's going to be the result? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And this will be the ultimate revelation of God's love. It will be the ultimate revelation of what it means that God is a consuming fire and the glory of God will be revealed and the fire of God will touch everyone and there will be a purification process. Will it be instantaneous? I don't know. Might there be some pretty hard-hearted holdouts that make it a few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years before they finally realize, I've got to let go of this delusion and this deception I've seen and I can no longer deny his goodness and his love and that there is no fulfillment apart from him. And they're going to bow their knee and they're going to gladly confess with their mouth thanksgiving and praise that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who's going to do that? Every knee, every tongue, without any category that's excluded from that. Once we understand what freedom is, that it's not just my ability to make a choice, it is my ability to make the right choice that leads to identity, that leads to purpose, that leads to fulfillment, that leads to good. And anytime I choose something other than that, it's because I think the other thing will lead to that. And I'm deluded and I'm deceived. That's not freedom, it's bondage. So what is freedom? Freedom is the ability to, as, as it has been said before, and as I've often said, freedom is the ability to fully relate to God as the person you were created and redeemed to be. That's almost identical to how heart defines it. And once you redefine freedom that way, freedom, God's value for freedom, no longer serves as a justification for believing in eternal conscious torment. It actually serves the other direction. Once you embrace a definition of freedom that can withstand a little philosophical and biblical scrutiny, using freedom to defend belief in eternal conscious torment completely collapses. So that is the fourth and final meditation. 
I really love that. I love the flow of these. That's probably uh, my second favorite one. I think my favorite one is the What is Judgment? But I, I really liked them all. It is a great book. Let me encourage you. I've summarized it. I've tried to connect the dots to why I think it matters and how I understand his arguments. Uh, there's the book he wrote. There's my thoughts about it. And then there's the living it out part. In, in the living it out part, I think this is the Rhodes part of the title of my podcast. Why, why does this matter? I, I think it matters uh, for internally because it, it allows a consistency that when we say God is good and God is just, that we're actually making space for those words to have meaningful content that's aligned with what we know to be just and good. That's one thing. I, I think the other picture is more uh, relational in that it, it begins to allow me to see humanity differently than when I no longer have this binary of us and them, when I no longer have this eternal separation of the sheep and the goats, but rather an understanding that, yes, Jacob and Esau may be separated, but it's for a season and, and, and it's redemptive and there's going to be this ultimate unity. It allows me to take 2 Corinthians 5 seriously, where it says that if that if Christ died, then everybody died. And, and there Therefore, I'm no longer allowed to see anyone according to the flesh. But if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. It, what this shift does away from eternal conscious torment to universal reconciliation, it gives me permission to see everyone through the lens of the cross. It creates a space in me to see everyone in Christ, no matter what they're struggling with, no matter uh, what's going on in their life. I can begin with the assumption this person is created in the image of God. There's an ultimate good that this person is heading towards because God values them. And they're already in Christ. They just may not know it yet. And I can begin to love them and honor them and treat them accordingly. And perhaps even lead them to discover on this side of eternity just how good God really is. Thanks for being with me through this podcast series. It's been a, a real pleasure to dig into this book and to try to uh, frame some of it and present the ideas. Maybe uh, this format may be better for some than others. And so I hope that's been the case. Uh, please, if you haven't read this book, it is worth your time. I encourage you to go on Amazon and purchase your own copy and read it and give copies away, and let's spread the word of this, this message. Uh, the next series, I'm going to be tackling Brian Zahn's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. It's going to intersect some themes here, but it's also going to allow us to attach some other themes to this idea of the goodness of God. And so it'll be a nice continuation of what we've been talking about, but with a different voice invited into it, that of Brian Zond and his great writing. So thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Have have a great week. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I'd love to connect with you on Twitter at W Allen Smith and on Instagram at W underscore Allen Smith. If you like what I'm doing and find it helpful, tell someone else about it. That kind of organic growth is the only kind I'm interested in. If you have a comment or question, you can email me at info at Thank you so much. Until next time.